it's good to have a pin somewhere outside your house around the front door. Really? For uh, bad spirits to get caught on. It have catches you... the bad spirits on their way in. They can't get in the house. You should know that I forgot to record the beginning of this. So the context for the pin outside the house is that Ed has a has a little 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 pin with uh, Richard Hugo on it posted on the fence. So have you have you I'm recording now, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, now that you're finally saying something interesting, for shit's sake. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I just uh, I'm mm-hmm. ma- I'm mad at the I'm mad at the president today. So I, I just I'm mad at the president too, and I don't know what to do about it. Well, before before we get to that, I'm curious what if you have if you've put other pins outside your house in the past, and and if so, did it work? I like a like a little stick pin. Yeah. You know. Uh, Bobby pin, yeah, Bobby uh, pin. Like by the front gate, sure. Is a an old superstition to do that to catch uh, <clears throat> keep bad spirits from entering your house because they get caught on them and they can't come inside. See, you would think that if the, if you didn't provide them with a bobby pin, their long stringy white hair would get it would cover up their face and they would stumble. By giving them the bobby pin, they just tuck it tuck the hair away and they can they can come and eat you. Mm, well. You know, everything has a risk. <laughs> everything has a risk. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Mm-hmm. It's true. Uh, yeah, did you, uh, uh, I see a reel-to-reel uh, oh, thing yeah. behind you and uh, a board um, vertically arranged. Yeah, well, the, the, the reel-to-reel's been there the whole time I've been, I've been living okay. in this place. But the mixer, the mixer is new. It was the source of great frustration for me this week, which I've now overcome. Do you, do you want to hear this, that story? Was this eBay related? Yes. Uh huh. The problem is, I used to own this mixer in the past. A ver, you know, a, a copy of this mixer. It's it's called the Hill Multimix, and it's a British mixer from the eighties. And it's not very valuable, but it's quite rare. Um, okay. It's a really well-made, good-sounding consumer. So, what do they call it? Pro prosumer mixing mm-hmm. board. Good for home home recording. And uh, they're very obscure, and there aren't a ton of them out there. So, the only way to get one, even at a fairly small amount of money, is eBay, because um, they just don't pop up in your local Craigslist. So. I had a for a long time. I've had. I wanted. I realized I shouldn't have sold it, so I I wanted it back. And uh, I had a you know like a running search on eBay, so it would alert me when one popped up. One pops up. It's in great condition, tested and working, on all channels working. Um, decent price. Bought it immediately. Then I wrote to the you know the guy I said, "All oh, right, great. I'll ship this to you tomorrow." I said, "Great. Don't forget." to include the cable that connects the power supply to the mixer because the mixer is useless without it. And he said, oh, there's no cable. And I said, well, then it's not working. Like, how did you test it without the cable? And he's like, well, I tested it at the guy's, at the place where I got it. And it was, it was, in, it was in the guy's rack. I tested it at his place. I bought it from him, and I sold it. He And he said, the guy says, he gave me a bunch of wires, but I threw them out. So I said, okay, well, <laughs> you should refund my money because 
it's useless because it's not. And he's like, well, no, it's not useless. You just go get another cable. And I said, no, it's like a custom five pin thing with two connectors that you, that you don't exist anymore. And it's what, what year was this uh, device made? Early eighties, I think. Okay. Um, you can make a, a cable, but you have to source all these parts, and I didn't really know how to do it, and I didn't want the hassle. And it's like, if you threw out the part that makes it work, then it's not working. And he's like, oh, okay, I'll refund your money. And then, like, an hour goes by, and he's like, actually, I just got off the phone with eBay. Um, they say, I didn't say anything about a cable in the auction, so buyer beware, and if you don't like it, you can file a claim. I'm shipping it now. So he's in the guy was just dumb, but I was really mad at the time. So when it arrived, I immediately filed a claim and I just started trolling like PayPal froze his money. And I said, Oh, it would be great if you just pay me a little bit of the money back so I can find the parts and I can make the cable. And he's like, no, never. You're wrong. You're wrong. Mm-hmm. And he just didn't, he didn't want to admit to himself that he did a, monumentally stupid thing by throwing away the custom part that allows the thing to operate. So finally he said, go ahead, file the claim. I'm going to win the case. I was like, all right, bye. And, uh, then the next day, like in the middle of the night, I get an email that says you have been given a partial refund offer. <laughs> and it was like a piddling amount of money, but it was like 40 bucks, but I accepted it. Cause I did, I obviously didn't want to, You'd won. Yeah, I won. I just, you know. You won. Yeah. So I I found, I think I found the right connectors and the right cable, and I ordered them with the 40 bucks, and uh, I will solder together the, what I hope is a cable that will work. Mm -hmm. I'll figure it out one way or another, but, but it was like, but it was. If you're going to, if you're going to sell technical equipment on eBay, you should need to, you should, and purport to know what it is. Exactly. Yeah. If you're saying like, oh, I'm, I'm selling this board. I don't know what the fuck it is. Yeah. I don't know if it's got all the parts. Shit. You want it? Here's some money. Give me some money. I'll give it to you. Yeah. That's a fair that's a fair representation of 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 the transaction. Yeah. But that's not what happened. Yeah. And he, like, okay, you know, I'll take a gamble. I'll take a gamble on it that everything's there. And then the hour I think that it's passed. I don't yeah, know. exactly. And if I had gotten the thing and the cable wasn't yeah. there, I would have rolled my eyes, you know, swore an oath and then just ordered the parts anyway. Yeah. So the But the thing that was fascinating to me was that watching the guy go from polite and apologetic Mm -hmm. to, like, angry fuck-you-ism within one hour. Defiance. And he said, said, you should consider yourself lucky that – I, he said, I could uh, could sell this for $100 more and it would have sold really fast. And I'm like, well – why don't you do that then? Like refund yeah. my money and charge a hundred dollars more, and then with a with the correct description, and you will get even more money. But of course, yeah. he knew, he knew that wasn't true because he doesn't know what he's talking about. He kept at one point he was like desperately searching Google for. He's like, you can just use this. You can just use this, and it was like things that have. He just has no clue, and that there were things that had nothing to do with the product and wouldn't work. But he. It, there's just the the he had dug in on me being wrong and yeah. no no logic would convince him which is not which is not analogous in any way to our current political situation it does seem analogous whoops it, i guess it does 
some. So you're mad at the president too. He, um, he. Uh, I'm not even mad at him. I'm I'm mad at anyone who uh, uh, is going. Him. I'm mad at people who don't like him either. Yeah, and aren't do, and aren't doing anything about it. Yeah. So that's most most Republicans I know um, who did did not vote for him, do yeah. not like him, but um, won't do anything about it. He's destroying their political party. He's he's affecting their identity, um, and slowly uh, turning them into uh, his minions. Yeah. Yeah. The acquies the acquiescence, the polite genteel acquiescence of uh, Republicans, um, of traditional Republican voters, who um, are they are now the most disgusting and grotesque people on the planet <laughs> they're grotesque because they um you know trump he's a monster we know he's a monster he knows he's a monster he's being monstrous yeah. that's not grotesque yeah grotesque is the people who are just deciding to side with you know the the easy way no matter how many people die yeah that's that's where the blood is that's who's that's who's that that's who's uh um, and we got to, we can't fight. I don't know how to fight those people or, or reach them. I'm, I'm related to a lot of them, but I, I but I, you know, I, I'm exempting personal relations from this, Sure, but, uh, um, that's hard to know, do. I, I admire their friends and neighbors. Well, I want to get angry at them, but it's not, I, I you know, what yeah. is that? What does that do? I have you a know? question for you because you, in addition to knowing more Republicans and, and having more Republicans in your family than I do, you, you uh, actually have experience working on a on a Republican political yeah. campaign. Like you, you know people who are in. <laughs> I have gone fishing with Paul you, Ryan. You have gone fishing with Paul Ryan. Like you know, you not yeah. only know people in politics, you know actually some of the people involved here. And the thing that I can't understand, and maybe you can shed some light on for me, is. It seems to me it would take only a modicum of courage for these people who are elected based on values that, while I might not agree with most of them, are ones that their constituents agree with, right? Um, they could say, come out and say, Trump is terrible. The health care bill is terrible. Um, he is lying to you. Mitch McConnell is lying to you. These people want to hurt you. I am conservative, but I want to protect you. Like I said, mm -hmm. I was going to when I got elected. And there would be, there would definitely be some retaliation from fellow senators and House members. But then after that, tr you know, Trump is going to leave office in shame at some point, or right. more likely on a stretcher, and um, due to heart failure. And uh, this era will pass and history will judge all the sycophants very harshly. And isn't that obvious to these people? No, no, it's no more obvious to them. And, and I, it's a false analogy, but um, like if, if uh, uh, a democratic Senator in 2007 were to come out and say, you know, um, I'm a Democrat and uh, you know, I have liberal ideology, but uh um, 
but Barack Obama is a monster, and I don't like uh, Obamacare um, or you know other signature policies of this president, and uh, um, and I'm standing up against him. What would what would other Democrats have done? It'd be a very lonely position, and it would seem deranged. Yeah, except. <laughs> and well, uh, well, definitely except except, but within in, in their world, yeah, it's not that different from that, right? Yeah, of course, or in the sense that in their world, the Obama that they the Obama that they imagine is similar to the Trump that we imagine. Ooh, I mean, they're full of shit. <laughs> um, you know, except that we, I, I know that you know. Despite my, uh, despite the propaganda and uh, my enfranchisement, uh, deep down, Obama is uh, uh, a lovely, lovely, sweet man. Sure, sure. Did you? So there were, or not? I don't know. I don't know anything anymore. Trump was. <laughs> Trump was complaining about the, especially Fox is complaining about the lavishness of the Obama's vacation. The Obamas. Barack Obama is not the president. <laughs> he can yeah. go on any vacation he wants. And meanwhile, yeah. Donald Trump has spent his life literally in a golden tower. The, the, well, that's this, this political era is about, it's still about destroying Obama. Boy, the Trump a, administration is a losing battle, man. Actions. I don't know. It's all about discrediting um, Obama, uh, eliminating his legacy. And, um, you know, they're trying to litigate history. Mm. Um, trying to erase him. <laughs> Meanwhile, I know people with whom I am politically aligned who are still trying to litigate the 2016 Democratic primary. So, well, mm. and the the 2001, of course. You know. Well, and I mean, to some degree, you know, when I was back in Kansas, uh, you know, what my dad and other people say anytime you. The best thing I've I've uh, I have never visited home, and there's been so little political talk than than the last two visits home during the Trump administration. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I think my Jersey Shore trip is going to be like that too. At my house. We talked about <laughs> politics, um, you know, from the time I was in the crib until 2016. The yeah. only thing my family really has ever talked about is politics, um, and and now they don't. Mm-hmm not come up and I don't, I'm not going to bring it up. No. <laughs> and when it comes up, I, I leave, I left the room. I left a, uh, I was making an egg salad sandwich for That's my dad. An honorable project. And, uh, uh, he said something about something ambivalently approving about Trump. <laughs> and I left the sandwich open faced on the counter. I walked away uh, left the house, didn't come back for an hour. <laughs> That's very good. Very good response. Almost poisoning him. Because the uh, egg salad sandwich, is mayonnaise in there. Yeah. But, you know, I just, I can't, uh, I can't begin to uh, discuss these things with them. Um, but uh, I interrupted that thought for, uh, for another one. Um yeah, I don't know. That was all they want to. They, they, whenever anything comes up, does come up um, about Trump, they, they their equivalent is with is something to do with Bill Clinton, right? So yeah, yeah so Trump has done. Yeah, Trump is clearly a, a monster who's going to destroy the country and uh, um, and the world. Uh, 
But, you know, Bill Clinton did something one time. Yeah. Bill Clinton, who has no control over anything anymore and hasn't for for a long time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, Uh, uh, oh, my God. They also, I also, one, the, the few times that politics did come up, I heard three different people say that the the alternative to Trump is totalitarianism. Mm. Right? That Obama was a totalitarian. <laughs> this must be this must be the language of Fox News. Yeah. Uh, and that like Michelle, this is this is the weirdest thing, was that Michelle, uh, tr- uh, um, and this 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 shows that. That uh, um, the the Trump campaign and every single motherfucking Republican is deep at their core a racist and they will never change and should all be shoved into the water. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is this attack on Michelle Obama's food suggestions as uh, you know as totalitarianism? You know, it's clear to me that they just want to um, they want to they want to erase Obama because and, and, and Michelle Obama because they were black and they touched their country and they don't want anyone black touching their stuff. They sure don't, and they don't want. uh, Then they'll die doing so. They'll die trying to erase the the stain of African American fingerprints on their precious little stolen country. And then, uh, I I think you know that Trump's Trump's tweet this morning was about uh, Mika. What's her name? Wanting to come to the White House, but she had had. Trump said she'd had. Uh, she'd had uh, plastic surgery and was bleeding. And so right. he said no. Which yeah. is, first of all, this preoccupation with... Blood. Blood. With women's blood. Women's blood is very strange. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and of course my tweet was, who, who could have imagined that a guy captured on tape mocking women's cosmetic surgery would continue to do that thing again and again? Uh there's also a deep, very creepy sexism at work that, of course, went into the presidential campaign. And I keep thinking of Mike Pence. Mike Pence won't eat lunch with a woman he's not married to. Yeah, I think it's dinner. Is it dinner? Yeah, or right. he probably he probably makes a difference. It might be confusing because he probably calls uh, lunch. <laughs> Supper, uh, supper, or dinner, and then, or yeah, supper and dinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> dinner and supper. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I, I, I just, yeah. I what can, did I, his mother do to him? What horrible thing did his mother? What, what, what horrible thing did he misinterpret his mother doing? I don't. I just don't know. I just don't know. Yeah. I wonder how. I wonder how much of this stuff is. Is is just sexual feelings from men that the that they can't take, they can't stand, and oh. they just destroy themselves and other people to yeah. to, pre- to prevent themselves from accepting this knowledge. There you go. There's the novelist. There's there's, a, there's an original the novelist's thought. understanding of uh, <laughs> motivations. I should be uh, I should be on CNN saying you see. So um, yeah. one thing. If you don't mind my changing the subject, one thing that I have found makes uh, these political machinations more tolerable is alcoholic beverages. And I invented one. 
Oh, what's it called? It's called the Jerry Hallowell. Oh, nice. Um, someone on Twitter gave me that name. I can't remember who, but uh, and I'm sure this has been invented before. But there's a magical substance that I discovered, and that gin? substance is no. Well, gin is involved in this drink, as you can imagine. Okay. Um, it's ginger simple syrup. Mm. Have you ever made it? I haven't made it. I uh, bought some ginger syrup for a. Uh, uh, it's like a French seventy-five with scotch. Yeah, can't remember what it's called. Some Toronto drink. <laughs> C- Canadian cocktails are are where it's at. Yeah. So, so you made it. How did you make it? Well, you it you make it's just like making regular simple syrup, except you add as you're simmering the the water and sugar, you peel, chop up, and throw in a shit ton of ginger. Um, Makes your house smell wonderful. Um, You either discard the ginger afterward, or you can, if you have like a, I'm told you can do this. I haven't actually tried it because I don't have a food dehydrator. But if you have a food dehydrator, you can dehydrate the, the, the sugar saturated ginger and it will become candy ginger. Um, I'll try that one of these days. Uh, if I, if I can, I'm sure you could dry it in the sun or something like, like, uh, you know, like native Americans with the Buffalo out on the, on the plains. Like but, uh, co-eds home for the summer at the country club. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Those, those groups have a lot in common. Oh God, I got to tell you about the book I'm reading. Speaking of, uh, native Americans, and how they are treated by white people. Um, anyway, so you got your ginger simple syrup. Your uh, your Jerry Hallowell is it's two parts iced tea. Okay. One part gin, one part lemon juice. So basically, squeeze a whole lemon. So it's bittersweet. Mm-hmm. Splash of Cointreau, or what the other the other orange thing is also fine. Patreon is that what it's called? Citroen. <laughs> I don't think it's Patreon. <laughs> Indiegogo? Citroen as, as a car. <laughs> you can throw in uh, yeah. three Vespas and an Alta Vista. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And an Alta Vista. That's good. A web crawler. Uh, and then you, uh, sp- then you put in a little bit of ginger simple syrup to taste. If you want a little sweeter, a little spicier, you add more, and then you shake that baby over ice, and you pour it over some more ice. It's refreshing, refreshing summer treat. Uh, you might serve it alongside some gins and tonics. What sort of uh, glassware well, is best? Uh, I have been drinking it out of these striped Fiesta Ware branded glasses. Um, one of the few glass things that I used that was made after 1970. Mm-hmm. I've been getting into vintage glassware. It's cheap. Anyway, Jerry Hallowell, I recommend it. I'll try it. I've actually been trying to drink less because um, I don't feel good. <laughs> but when I do have a drink, it's lately been a Jerry Hallowell. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't drink. I don't drink. Uh, I, I at least I think it was a uh, part of my uh, 
uh, this is a big part of my life was drinking, and I think I don't, I just don't do it much anymore. Yeah. And and when I do, I'm sort of forcing myself to, you know, I don't. I like I like the feeling of having a beer. Sure. But not much. I I used to like I used to like the feeling of having twelve beers. <laughs> I've never been able to fit more than two into my body of an evening because yeah. there's so much liquid. Yeah. I don't know how people do. I know that some, I know that people will polish off a six pack or two and get a good old drunk on. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if I were inclined to be drunk in that way, I just could not. I could not pour that much beer into myself. How did you do it, Ed? Larger, larger capacity. <laughs> okay. A bigger vat. <laughs> I don't know how I did it. By the way, by the way, yeah. Uh, you look good. Hey, I, mu- thanks, I must Taylor. say the, the combination of the dark frame glasses and the gray hair looks very good on you. It's gray. It's gotten gray. Yeah, it's very gray. It's white. It was pretty, we're reaching the point where calling it gray is vain because it's getting white. Is it really? Yeah. Uh, it's a little, yeah. yeah. I like it. I, like I, it. I went and got a haircut. I, I, I want so badly to have a regular barber, and I, I found one <laughs> in Montevilla, um, right next to the movie theater. The guy, uh, you know, it's, it's a cool little setup. He's about my age. You know, he's got a lot of film noir and doo-wop stuff. He's always talking about doo-wop and likes doo-wop. One of the uh, uh, Kingsmen gets his haircut there. You know, who lives around. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. It's a cool place. And I've, I've been three times now. And take Oscar. He gets his haircut. And I, it just pains me. He's the shittiest barber ever to wield a scissor. <laughs> He's terrible. <laughs> terrible. <laughs> terrible barber. Yeah, sorry. I think, I think I'm, I'm going to go back. I think <laughs> that I'm, I value the regularity of having a barber who I don't mind going to, and I know the way there, and I know the hours, and it's cheap, over having a good haircut. Yeah, the, rit- the ritual's more important than the haircut. Yeah. No one cares about my hair. No. Yourself least of all. I think it still looks good, though. Looks, looks, yeah. uh, looks poety. Yeah. It's kind of Wallace Stevensy, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I'm down on Stevens. Really? Why? Oh, he's a racist. Well, yeah. And the modernist aesthetic is racist. Do you want to elaborate on that? It's just, it's just bad to read people's letters. Yeah. Oh, don't do that. Don't read the letters. Um, what else is going on? You know um, whose letters do hold up is Flannery O'Connor's. They do. Yeah, because they're full of they're full of uh, uh, full of good advice. Yep, delicious food she recommends people eat. Yeah, how the peacocks are doing. Yep. My favorite line from her letters, one that has echoed in my mind for many years, um, is uh. To her, I can't remember the woman's name, but most of her letters were to one person who, in early editions of the letters, remained anonymous um, because uh, she wished to remain anonymous. Um, later, um, after she died, her her name was made public, and it wasn't like a famous person; it was uh, just a friend of hers. Mm-hmm. That, but their letters to each other were just great. And uh, she was writing to her friend about, I suppose, some kind of cereal that the friend sent her. 
And uh, she said, the maple oats really send me. Really send me. Yeah, really send me. Maple oats. Sounds like a character in one of her stories. (laughs) (laughs) Maple oats set out for the supermarket. Yeah, Maple Oates is a character whose uh, who's, um, who's glass eye uh, a villain absconds with. Yeah, she accidentally swallowed her glass eye <laughs> at an aquarium store. Yeah, Maple Oates. It's a good character. So I made a, there's an article popped up on, do you ever read the blog, um, you ever read the blog Atlas Obscura? Um, I have looked at it a few times. I bought their book. Oh, was it good? It was uh, nicely packaged for the Christmas trade. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, judging by the blog, I'm, I'm sure the book is full of interesting stuff, but um, they really, uh, they're, they're really exhaustive in finding little obscure, interesting bits of Americana. And uh, I guess world kind of as well. But this is an Americana story that I'm about to tell you. Um, Americana elsewhere in the world. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Hold on. That's good. Uh, So anyway, um, I happened, it's on my RSS and I maybe read a third of the things that pop up. And this one said, why all of upstate New York? which is where I live, grew up eating the same barbecue chicken. So I click through and I see a photo. The photo that accompanies this article is, and here, why don't I, why don't I put this in the Skype so that you can look at it too. Hold on just a moment. Just click the little conversation icon. See, I know how to do this now. Um, picture of some guys making a whole lot of chicken over a long barbecue pit um, in 1973. And this is a site that is ubiquitous in central New York. It is most intense in the counties around, uh, in Tompkins County, where I live, in the surrounding counties. But I'm told that it extends pretty far throughout central New York and into western New York. These uh, long pit barbecues either made of cinder blocks or sheet metal um, with wood burning in them. And then on top, these like, chicken, these cages filled with chicken parts. Um, and they're being dressed with a barbecue sauce that is not red. It's not tomato based. And I never actually bought this chicken, or I think I ate it once at the, at our, at a, at a, uh, the Ellis hollow fair up by my old place. Um, very delicious, but it never occurred to me that it was a single recipe that everyone in the area was using. And you'll see these things just, there are little towns where they'll just set these up in front of city hall, like by the side of the road and the city owned, the town will own the, you know, the, the, uh, there's a diagram there of how you can make the collapsible metal pit. All the towns around here own one of these things and have been trotting it out for 75 years or however long, 65 years. So the article reads, In 1950, Robert C. Baker, a professor at Cornell, published Cornell Cooperative Extension Information Bulletin 862, which is still available and you can still download it from Cornell, which changed summer in upstate New York forever. Entitled Barbecued Chicken and Other Meats, the bulletin describes a simple vinegar-based sauce. 
that can be used to turn broilers, chickens raised for their meat rather than their eggs, there's a bit of unnecessary information, into juicy, delicious barbecue heaven. At the time, this was an innovation. When Americans ate meat, they preferred beef and pork, and the poultry industry was just beginning to increase production. As an agricultural extension specialist, and and the Cornell Cooperative Extension is still a thing, and a great source of information about how to prevent various varmints from eating the stuff in your garden and, and other concerns like that. Uh, part of Baker's job was to convince Americans to eat chicken. Before he died in 2006, he invented chicken bologna, chicken hot dogs, chicken salami, and most famously, a prototype chicken nugget. So he was the inventor of the chicken nugget. This recipe is um, basically a little oil, uh, a pint, it says, of cider vinegar. You don't have to make that much. Three tablespoons of salt, one tablespoon of poultry seasoning, a little pepper, and an egg. And you got to beat the egg and then add the oil and beat it again so it's nice and whipped up. And then you put the chicken into plastic bags with the with the sauce and you marinate it oh, okay. over, yeah. overnight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you grill the chicken and you just brush that stuff on there while you turn it over and over. And man, it is real good. Yeah. Real good. Sharp. A sharp marinade. Yep. Yeah. It is. It browns up sweet. super nice. The color is beautiful. Uh, it's a little bit sweet. Um, and uh, I could not recommend it highly enough. As soon as this, I saw this, I was like, why haven't I? I never made this. And I made it a couple times since. It's really good. So Pretty easy to make. Did you use that much cider vinegar? I used um, the proportionally correct amount. So given that how little chicken I was actually making, just one little Weber full. Um, yeah. This is enough for 10 halves. So I cut that about in half. Poultry seasoning. Yeah. Poultry seasoning is, I can't remember what's in it, but a bunch of familiar items. Sage. Yeah. Thyme. I wonder if he invented poultry seasoning too. PCP? To... Is PCP in poultry seasoning? <laughs> yeah. A little, little gunpowder. Uh-huh. Yeah. A little lamp black. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some citronella oil. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Yeah. What you been eating? Um, chicken nuggets. I eat kids' food. I eat hot dogs and chicken nuggets. And, uh, like, uh... Like half the cereal, like I make a big thing of cereal for Oscar, and then he eats half of it, and I eat the other half, which is probably full of drool. Yeah, I just ate some uh, cereal. I don't yeah. even have a child. Yeah, I haven't been eating very adventurously. Um, went to um, went to see the Batman movie from 1966 at the Hollywood Theater. Oh, which I didn't know. I did not know there was a Batman movie. But no, it's the either. Adam West, Burt Ward. Um, really? Yeah. Was it any good? Well, <laughs> I didn't go to see it because it was good. All right. We went to see it because it was Batman. Yeah. Oh, I think I know the end to this story. I think I know the dramatic. Uh, the dramatic end is we left. We left the iconic Hollywood <laughs> non-profit theater. Yeah. Um, we we walked out, and uh, the uh, w- the uh, Portland edition of the World Naked Bike Ride was going by. And so we stood there with the, me and Oscar and Jill and uh, our neighbors and their 11-year-old <laughs> we'd gone with, um, uns- uh, separated. So half of the group had gotten across the street already, yeah. and then half of us were on the movie theater side of the street. 
and the beginning of the uh, the bike ride happened. Um, and so we were separated for about 15 minutes, and there was a little pause, and we were able to skitter across the street. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, got to our cars, and then uh, found that we were boxed in, that we had, we thought the whole bike ride had gone by because a thousand people, a thousand naked men and women, <laughs> all shapes and sizes, had just gone by us. Um, uh, and then we found as we tried to drive home, the you know, 15 blocks that the other 10,000, the remaining 10,000 <laughs> still needed to go by. And so we were at a, an, an intersection, um, uh, parked as the, as the, as the evening deepened and, uh, 10,000 naked people on bikes, skateboards, scooters, some joggers, one guy on a horse, uh, went by. And we uh, watched the whole thing because we had to. Oscar actually <laughs> fell asleep. Oscar thought it was hilarious. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Uh, the eleven, the eleven-year-old, our eleven-year-old neighbor, eleven-year-old right. boy, uh, was just destroyed, <laughs> just in agony, just on his knees, pleading with God to stop it, stop it now. <laughs> with his parents watching ten thousand of their naked neighbors. Oh, <laughs> and I thought it was fantastic. I yeah, was sure. Fantastic. We turned on our headlights. We had we had, we had our headlights off, um, and then people were, the, the riders were shouting, "Turn on your headlights!" <laughs> so we did, and uh, watched them go go by. Uh, there were some people who were stuck behind us who had no idea what was going on. Like they were just passing through town, yeah. and and were going crazy. One drunk guy in a truck who was screaming at them as he held his beer. Um, you know, there's yeah. two couple of, of, of likely Trump voters who are losing their <laughs> minds at this. Yeah. Um, but, uh, everybody approved of it. It was, a it was an amazing thing. Um, they went by pretty fast. Only saw a couple of people fall. It's a bad thing to fall off your bike when you're naked. It's not very good when you got clothes on, but that's gotta, yeah. that's yeah. gotta be. Uh, I had, we had a number of friends who were riding in it, although we didn't know it and we didn't see them. Yeah. Um, but reportedly, uh, uh, like about half the riders, they 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 retained their modesty officially. Well, with a with a well, you, a lot of the na- a lot of the naked bike riders were in fact just with uh, severely stripped down yeah. bikers. I don't think I could. I don't think I would do it unless I was going to go all the way. I think I, I I I don't think I would do it. But if I were going to do it, what would the point be if you leave right. your undies on? Right. Did you read the Wells Tower uh, essay about going to Burning Man with his father? Um, no, I didn't. Although, just quick, um, uh, quick uh, aside about Wells Tower. Yes. Um, I was describing something or other to Stephanie. About and I, it was a Wells Tower story. I think it's the one with the aquarium, yeah. if I remember right. And uh, and I couldn't remember his name, which was strange because I, you know, I've got memorable I, name. I have, it's a memorable name. I've got his yeah. book. Like it wasn't. I didn't have it where I was talking about him. Otherwise, I would have looked at it. Couldn't remember his name. So I just. I was so frustrated at not being able to remember it that I just started spitting out fake names. Hoping that I would hit on it, and you did. 
And I did. <laughs> and do you want to hear them? Yeah. They're pretty good, actually. I mean, I think these are all my future, um, all my future uh, pseudonyms. Yeah. Munson Rap, R.I.P.P. Yeah. Munson Rap. Yeah. Tucker Stone. Yeah. Johnson Bain. Hamill Steak. Hamill Steak is Hamel a good steak. Name. Tip yeah. Ramp. Gang Slap. Seven Pool. I've actually known two. I've met two guys named Seven. I've known two Sevens. I know a guy named Seven. Yeah? His original name was Steve. I think I've told this story. His real name was Steve Converse, which is a punk rock name. <laughs> it's, it's pretty good. <laughs> he changed it to Seven Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> Much better. Much better. Uh, Slater Loop. Slater was the Slater was the guy who um, was murdered in my former house, the bookie. Yikes. Uh, Chance Chaser. Yeah. Uh, Shunt Phillips. Yeah, Shunt. Alan Bench, yeah, and Thune Marker. Thune Marker's good. Thune Marker was the one who got me to Wells Tower because I knew it. I can see now, like I've got um, ramp, pool, bench. Yeah, you know, I've got like noun, municipal noun objects. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I, but uh, City Hall McGee. <laughs> yeah. Uh so anyway, I but I've read his short stories, but I never yeah. read any of the essays. Though I know that most people who know of his work probably know of the essays, which I guess were published in like pretty prominent places. He wrote a lot of them uh he had a standing thing with uh Washington Post's magazine. Um, he's done other things. Well, he often, I don't know if he does much anymore, but, but, uh, his bread and butter was like really immersive things where he would go and basically pretend to be somebody else for, or do, do something, you know, canvas voters in Florida. Yeah. Sorry. You you blanked out for a second there. Am I back? Yeah, you're back. Um, well, he's, he's a friend and, and a genius. One of my one of my several genius friends. Wait, did he? Um, did he? A lot uh, of friends who aren't geniuses, and there's a lot of geniuses who are not my friends. But uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the overlap. <laughs> uh, real quick, did he? Has he published another book of fiction? No, there's a novel, The Offing. Yeah, just the one book of short stories. Um, every, uh, but the essays have been collected in a in a book, or haven't yeah, they? Yeah, I think so. Anyway, this this one I think it was might have been for Rolling Stone about going to Burning Man with his father, and it's a great uh, paragraph because he's he's just a great stylist. Yeah, and he's just a magnificent sentence and paragraph stylist about uh, the phenomenon of shirt cocking, which is people who go to Burning Man, which is ostensibly a sort of a nudist thing, and mm-hmm. uh, they're naked but they're wearing shirts. Uh, so Donald <laughs> ducking or shirt cocking. <laughs> Donald uh, ducking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a fair bit of, of that in the um uh, uh, there was definitely a a little a little bit of a broy um vibe to the, the bike ride. Uh, but other other things. It was it was fantastic. It was a cross section of a lot of people. Um and it just kept going. It was two hours. We were stuck oh in that for two hours. Yeah, I'd be very frustrated. Ten thousand, twelve thousand naked people went by. Really 
went by too quick for it to be a, a, as somebody has pointed out naked can get unsexy pretty fast <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah naked and sexier it's not it was not the uh, uh the world's sexy bike ride which would probably involve a lot of clothes yeah well uh, when you're when you're picking and gravel a process out of your wanker yeah. suddenly it's not yeah. so sexy anymore yeah uh, well, it was, it, was, it was a moving experience. I was I was all for it. Um, apparently, uh, p- people who rode in it had a great time because it was sure. it was 102 fucking degrees here in Portland for a few days. Wow! And it was on one of those nights when it was you know very it was 80 degrees at night, 85 degrees at night. Said that the the park where the 12,000 naked people, the staging area was a little weird because of the uh, the uh, the high perv factor of people who are just walking around with canes and old digital kids. <laughs> friend Hannah said you know they're oh kind of old guys with canes and like old digital cameras <laughs> you know yeah you know, not the not the most up to date uh, you know that in like two two thousand two someone mm. was like grandpa you got to try out the digital camera ah it's a fad and then they bought one and still has it. Yeah. So that was that was a that was a great uh, a great night. Uh, the Batman was pretty good. There's an exploding shark. Yeah. I never I had never seen the TV show, so I mean I I've, I've no I know what it's supposed to be like, but I'd never actually seen. Wait, Adam you, you never saw it? I never saw it. I never saw it. How'd you miss it? Because it was off the air. Um, it's five years before I was born. Uh, well, I guess it was I guess, not. It was not part of the rerun cycle of yeah, our local. I was going to say, if local, if you live near New York, New York or Philadelphia, and I assume other other mm-hmm. major cities, that um, as as I did, there there were you could find Batman and Robin, you could find Batman on multiple channels, pretty much yeah, all day no, long. We didn't have it. Too risque, yeah, for the Midwest. <laughs> Although it was written by my um, friend Maria Semple's dad, who was the, oh, the writer. For no those. way, really. Renzo Semple Jr. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But uh, um, you know, I heard on another podcast that um, mm-hmm. Maria is going to be played by um, by uh, uh, what's her name in a movie? Julia Roberts. Julia Roberts. Yeah. In a, in a I movie. still don't know who will be playing um, Alonzo Wren, which is the yeah. the character with some similarity to me uh, although I assume so. it would be George Clooney of course of course yeah no, no that would work actually you're kind of Clooney. she told me that she was thinking more of a Jonah Hill type which clarified our relationship sure did sharply sure did. than anything else okay I I have to say yeah. you were a lot more like George Clooney than Jonah Hill and I like well, Jonah Hill he's very funny sure, and you're very funny he but he's likable you were yeah. funny in the way that Clooney is funny, not in the way that Jonah Hill is funny. Okay. And you look more like him. Especially with the gray hair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another moving thing that happened this week, yeah. aside from the naked bike ride, was what I suppose is very much the opposite of it. I went and taught a poetry class at a prison. Oh, wow. What was it I like? Went to prison last Thursday. Um. It was uh, well. It was weird. It was a very minimum, very low security prison. Yeah, I had less security than um, the same level of security in entering a high school. Um, except for the there was you know was, at some point there was a, a big fence with barbed wire, 
but it was not even very prominent. I think uh, I think people do walk away from it. People, but it's a minimum security prison. I think mostly for people who have been in the prison system for a long time, yeah, and are are uh, approaching their uh, um, expiration date. No, that'd be like death row. Uh, the expiration date, the expiration of their incarceration. Right. Right. Uh, so they've been in for 15 or 20 years, maybe, and uh, are going to get out. And so sort of ramp down the the rules so it's not that stark of a difference from… Time to know, learn some practical skills like, like practical poetry skills. writing. Right. Uh, there's some hedge clipping. There's some prisoners <laughs> with large, scary-looking hedge clippers as I was walking in. Yeah. And uh, you can learn wastewater management mm-hmm. there. Uh, they've got beekeeping. Oh, wow. Uh, they work with cats and dogs to get them, habituate them, uh, and then so that they can go to a, uh, you know, to humane society after that. Uh, they've got some classes. You can get your AA, I think, there. Mm-hmm. It's a very civilized place. Had a poetry, taught a poetry class to about 10 dudes. Who were um, uh, very attentive, you know. People yeah. in prison, they listen because they don't have a lot. No matter yeah. what you're bringing, you know, the most boring shit you could lay on a <laughs> 19-year-old is going to be met with a, a, a sharp, critical enthusiasm. Sure. By a 40-year-old who has had a lot of time. We to be bored already. Cornell has a prison teaching program. A lot of my grad students do it. I have not, frankly, had the had the chutzpah to do it myself. Um, but I I think I will eventually. Um, I but, think it's uh, great. But I yeah, think I, I think this is the story I hear from all of them, which is in a way it's kind of their favorite class that they teach because um, it's it it really means something to the people who are who are taking the class. Well, and and you can't, uh, um, you know, you need to say things that are meaningful mm-hmm. instead of bullshit, right? You know, um, so I was talking about metaphor and things, showing them some poems, and then like how how we interpreted and talked about the poems, it, it, it meant something. Yeah, you know, I don't even I didn't pick them out specifically for prison, but you know, there was not there was a sense of well, we're spending our time on this, and here's something that somebody wrote, and and. Uh, uh, unhemmed by a lot of time constraints, let's let's really get into it. I think it's the, the most useful thing for me was now ha- having in my mind of of uh, who one is addressing when they're writing um, to include in that people who are locked up. Yeah. Just have that in mind that okay, here's here's a sentence I'm writing or this this thing that this this idea that I'm throwing out there. Um, I know I have some sense of how somebody like me would hear it. What would this sound like to somebody who um, is imprisoned? You know, yeah. this the thing you are alluding to here. Frame of reference is I think frame of reference. I find it the hardest thing to talk to Cornell students about. Um, they're, they're, as you can imagine, very smart young people, and I really love talking to them. But this idea, it's very hard to get students who are 
kind of accustomed to being rewarded for their intelligence and suffused largely with the exception that everything is going to be okay. Yeah. The idea that that's not the default mode of existence for human beings and is not necessarily the place you want to be writing from. I think, but having, having been editing Okie Panky for two and a half years, I've probably looked at 2,500 short stories. And the number one problem is that the writers, even writers with some technical skill, seem not to be writing for a population that includes incarcerated people. Not that you should specifically be thinking of specific groups of people you want to speak to, but mm-hmm. it's clearly aimed in its the assumptions the fiction is making mm-hmm. at people very similar to the author. Um, and uh, it's, it's dull. It is dull. So was that, I assume this, that was uh, that change of perspective was refreshing to you. It was very, it was very refreshing. It was very, and it also helped me, uh, I brought it, you know, brought in a couple of poems and it helped me see, um, see the work of these, these poems, these poets that I was talking about with them from their perspective and some of the, seeing some of these important concerns about freedom and redemption, um, seeing them cast into greater relief in these poems that I, I, I suppose in an essay I could acknowledge that they were there, but I couldn't necessarily feel the importance of them. And then I, mm-hmm. you know, and talk with them. I was like, Oh, I see that's, this is really, this is, this means something. Yeah. This is not just data. This is meaning difference between data and meaning. Yeah. So it was good. Um, this weird go going to prison, and I made the mistake afterwards of uh, looking up to see what a couple of them had done. <laughs> no, no, don't do that. <laughs> but you don't do. You don't do. Well, both. I mean, it was an invasion of some sort of privacy, even though it's all public record. Sure. But I mean, I, how was I not going to? Um, and then after looking at, kind of just glancing to see two of them, I I knew that uh, I didn't want to know the rest. Yeah. You, I just gave a, I gave a re-listen to that This American Life about the, can't remember who the reporter was, but it was about a, a, um, a prison putting on what the hell was it, Macbeth maybe, yeah, um, and uh, like staging this staging this theatrical production, untrained actors in jail for an audience of other prisoners, um, and man, it's really good. But that was one of the. You know, that was the, 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 I think it was Jack Hitt was the reporter. And, um, he, he, he ended up, he ended up looking up, looking to see what they did and then also regretted it and thought it was an invasion of privacy. He went into with the same logic. It's, it's, it's public information. But then you realize that the, the, um, the, the, un, the unspoken contract that he'd made with these people he'd befriended in the prison, um, was that the, that their you know their their time together be more self-contained than that, um, which I found really interesting and moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was a powerful experience. I don't know if I care to repeat it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, so that's what we've been up to here: naked people and incarcerated people. Just kind of seeing how other people. You know how other people live, how other people spend their time. Sure. 
did you did what? you talk to Oscar about the? Did you tell Oscar that you were teaching a class at the prison? Uh, he he overheard me say it, and had he had a couple of questions um, that I think I just said. Well, I'm just going to teach a class like I do at the school. Just they have classes there. I think that satisfied his his curiosity about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So this is still related to the book I alluded to earlier in the podcast, um, uh, which is uh, David Grand's Killers of the Flower Moon. Okay. Uh, a book, book this about is the FBI the, book. The Origins of the FBI. Because um, when we, were, we did that event together at, o- Oklahoma, at Powell's, right. we were talking yeah. about it. And didn't you yeah. say you knew someone who was tangentially involved in this case? Was it? Um, oh no! Well, it wasn't. It wasn't whose that family case. was somebody whose family was uh, involved in, in uh, an abduction of an oil man in uh, Oklahoma. Yeah, and that was in the early days of the FBI, and because of his political connections, uh, um, they. You know the, the the federal response was was very strong, and I think was at least in the the story I understand was part of like a, either an early test of the FBI or part of what you know caused this looser coalition of federal and local law enforcement people to become more formalized as the FBI or something like that. Well, the case that there's a specific case that Grant is writing about that was also instrumental in shaping the FBI, uh-huh. and. Uh, it was, and I didn't know this, but it's about a century ago. The um, Osage were one of the tribes um, who, you know, suffered most heavily during the Indian Wars, and they got they got the shittiest bunch of land um, for their reservation. Very sort of rocky, hard to farm on land, and of course, it turned out had oil that it had oil under it. Yeah, and they became extraordinarily wealthy. But the efforts of white people to take it away from them, there was a whole program of guardianship whereby any Native American, any Osage could be declared unfit, incompetent to manage their own money. And they would, you know, a judge, a white judge would, um, there's, there were very few full-blooded Osage who did not have a white guardian who controlled their money for them. Um, and of course these people would, were corrupt and they would steal the money or they would, um, you know, the, the, the Osage, uh, who owned the money would want, you know, basic supplies would want living expenses, food and so on. And often the white guardians would own the store that the <laughs> stuff was sold at. And then they would mark it up. Yeah. Um, yeah. by a huge percentage. Um, and so, at some point, a, a bunch of Osage started being murdered um, in what seemed like a random series of murders, of killings, probably seem, seemingly the same people, but there was no, there seemed to be no rhyme or reason until Hoover, who had just started the, it was just the BI at the time, the, the Bureau of Investigation of the Justice Department, had, had sent out this guy, White, who... Um, Later was the later later was warden at Leavenworth for for twenty years before he retired, um, and he discovered that it was a it was a huge coordinated plot to defraud 
the Osage from all of their money um, by, you know, carefully calculating who murder, who gets murdered in what order so that the money would be passed down to someone who is married to a oh white man. Oh, my God. Yeah. It was completely bananas. Um, and I haven't gotten to the – I still have about 50 pages to go. I'm reading this for – I'm going to review it for the LRB. If they, right, if right. they like the review, they'll, they'll print it. Right, so right, I'll right. elaborate on it later. But um, And I haven't read the ending. But And Grand doesn't mention this at all, but it's – Ferguson all over again, or Ferguson mm. is it all over again. The efforts, of, you know, all these cases in which white cops do not get convicted for what are obviously cold-blooded murders of black people. Yeah. Um, it was the same damn thing. They could not get a white jury to convict white murderers who participated in mass killings of Osage Indians. And uh, man, it fills you with despair. It was a goddamn mm. century ago, and nothing has changed. Could be yesterday, yeah, yeah. So I intend to sort of roll roll that into the the review. I I, I don't think Grant is going to go there in the later pages. I think he's it's very much a a, a limited. It's a work of history, is historical research, sort of limited by its time period. But I can feel him. <laughs> I can feel him broadly hinting, like, does any of this sound familiar to you? It's so in the American grain, it's just sickening. I'll have to read it. Yeah, it's good. It's well written. Yeah. Although, What else has Grant written? Or is he – he's a Wall Street Journal reporter? What's his um, – Yeah, let's find out. He's um, a news reporter. He wrote another book. I haven't read him before, but he wrote another book that sounded really interesting to me. The Lost City of Z. Oh, that's his, fam- that's his big book. Yeah. Right. Um, right about the quest for this uh this city on on in the Amazon basin. Right, right. Uh but um that's that's why he's yeah. He his And actually want to I want to like vent a pet peeve and he doesn't do this very much. He only do, did it four or five times, so I'm not even going to mention it in the review. But there's a thing that some historians do all the time which is they they're so eager to get research detail into the story that they will have, they will take on this, they will take on this close third person to insert thoughts into the, into the minds of the, of their subjects, thinking the things that they want you to know they found out. Oh yeah. And man, why do, why does, this is one of the reasons I don't (laughs) read history is because it seems that every time I pick up a, a, a history book. It's doing this fake novel bullshit. So Grant Grant doesn't do that. So um, yeah, that is a crap. That is crap. Yeah. But uh, that's good. Yeah. I, but you'll you'll like this a lot. Yeah. What else you've been reading? What else I've been reading? Well, you know, I've been taking. I've been making for the first time ever. I made a list. Making a list of every book I read in 2017. Oh, that's right. All of them. And the ones I don't finish, the ones I finish are in bold face. The ones I don't finish are, in, are not in bold face. Um, I loved Deb Olin Unferth's Wait Till You See Me Dance. Did I mention that last time? Who was it by? Deb Olin Unferth. She's a gray wolf. Oh, writer. sure. Sure. Right. I haven't, he didn't mention it. No. I've read some of her, her things. I think she was from Lawrence, Kansas at some point. That might be, that might be so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think she lives in Austin now. 
Um, I really like her. She, <laughs> she's. <laughs> I was talking to her when I met her. We had we had dinner together after some. I mean, I I feel like I told the story. We're dinner. At, we're doing some event together back yeah. in January and had dinner before the event. And she said, "Do you have any children?" And I said, "Yeah, I've got a couple of sons." Um, I said, "Do you do you have any children?" She's like, "Oh, I think it's morally wrong to have children." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, but she asked what? she asked first yeah she asked first and okay, i was so like was... man i like this lady <laughs> yeah. uh she's really she's really delightful she has this wry sense of humor we'll say seem we'll we'll doesn't doesn't worry about hurting your feelings or not she'll say what's on her mind which i really like in the person um also uh and her and this is, book is a story collection it's just terrific um dan sheehan uh Friend of mine, married to Taya Obrecht, my old student. Okay. His first novel is coming out. It's called Restless Souls. It's about some um, Irish guys, Dan's Irish, who um, travel with their um, shell-shocked journalist friend to California um, to try to uh, solve his problems through the use of like a self-help guru. So it's a it's a, going to meet the guru. Yeah, going to meet trip the guru. To the, it's a trip to the guru. Trip to the guru in California, and it's very much like a uh, it's a fish out of water story. It's a like buddy comedy. It's super dark, really great. The serious parts of the novel take place in um, um, the former Yugoslavia during the war, where this guy is re- reporting on what's going on and ends up getting sort of psychically wounded. Yeah. So that's coming out this later this summer, I think. It's really good. And Elif Badiman's The Idiot. She's... Yeah, is it a novel? It's a novel. Big, long uh-huh. novel in which almost nothing... There's no plot. Yeah. And it's about, a, it's about a young woman's first year of college um, mm-hmm. and her efforts to see the world through the study of language. Um, but it's... I've never been less bored by a book in which nothing is happening. Mm-hmm. than this book so really really well written really clever and uh apparently she wrote it soon after college put it away for 15 20 years and came back to it and revised it um uh-huh. so it, but this is uh, her first book she wrote a book a non-fiction book about f- the fandom of russian literature oh right that's right that's right and the and the that the, the, that book is called the possessed, and this one is called the idiot. Right. So so far, all of her oh, books right. are, are the same yeah. names as Russian books. That's good. Yeah. How about you? Think of the Patriot. Did anything happen? Patriot's a book with nothing really happens. No, or very little happens. Yeah, well, especially the second half where it turns into like first it's a war after, book. after the plane crash. Yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's like a it's a war novel, and then suddenly part two, and then yeah, it's this weird hallucinatory. More kind of catch twenty two ish, kind kind of surreal comedy. Yeah. By the way, I think that was a great novel. I love it. I love it. I know it's his first novel. You wrote him a fan letter, and he just about it. Yeah. He seemed. He was like, "Oh well, if if liking that book is something you want to do, you do you." I'm still shocked at how little how little known he is. I was talking to uh, uh, for a, those a, who a don't friend. already know, we're talking about Evan S. Connell, whom yeah. Ed you you introduced me to. I I, be, I got addicted to Evan S. Connell when you were courting yeah. your wife. 
Oh yeah, yeah. yeah because the, court, the courtship period. Yeah, we went to you and I went to Dairy Queen. You didn't. This is it was it was very <laughs> yeah, 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 it's yeah. very an off told story. Yeah, yeah. A very scoogy way of doing things yeah. is you just let's go to Dairy Queen. We go to Dairy Queen and uh, you got a little errand to do. You can drop yeah. off a Sunday at Jill's place. That's so right. I just sat out in the car for twenty minutes, and the only book in the car was Evan S. Connell's collected stories, and uh, I'm, I became a fan in those moments. Those moments in your caddy. Off-told story. I'm 47 years old. I get to tell <laughs> the same story over and over as many until, times as I want until the end. I've endured. I've endured my uncles and my dad's repeated stories long enough that it's my turn. Yeah, yeah. I was talking with a friend back in Kansas. I went back to Kansas. I think since yeah. I talked to you last uh, for the centennial of uh, Gwendolyn Brooks's birth yeah miss brooks has been gone for a while but uh it was a great event at the uh, brown versus the board uh of education historical site which is an old elementary school the one that she attended uh was forced to attend in the auditorium and there were about 40 readers including uh kevin young who's a topekan and i didn't uh, know he was from topeka absolutely uh, we took our, our first creative writing class together when oh. we were in seventh grade. He is good at Thomas writing. Thomas Fox Averill. Yeah. He's uh, very good at writing. He's got a new book coming out about hoaxes. Oh. I think that's kind of what it's called. It's about to come out. It's, uh, it's not great. Well, Grey Wolf did the Grey album. Yeah. Which is a great book. Um, I think my friend uh, Paul Malashevsky also did a... A book about hoaxes. Uh, he did. Called Fakers. Right. Literary hoaxes. Literary hoax. Yeah, that was literary hoaxes. Yeah. You're right. You know, con artists, counterfeiters, and other great pretenders. I'll link to that. Yeah. As Alice would say. So um, there were a number of... It was, it was a good good uh, event. A number of other, including a number of uh, Gwendolyn Brooks's relatives. Um, uh, uh, a niece or grandniece who accompanied her... On a lot of official trips, including a White House state dinner, was ah. there, and she told the story of that. Which president? Uh, uh, Mr. Carter. Great. Mr. Carter. Uh, and uh, some other relatives and, and friends of the family were there, and it was, uh, it was a great event, about 200 people um, in this old auditorium of a elementary school, um, everybody reading a Gwendolyn Brooks poem, and some people giving some remembrances. Uh, it was a really fascinating event. That sounds great. Um, but I was sitting after, afterwards, got to, you know, got to have dinner with some you know, friends. And, and we were Kansas, a lot of Kansas writers. And Cannell was from Kansas City. And I was amazed that, that uh, most of them had not ever heard of him. Some of them have heard, had heard of Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, the movie. Sure. We're vaguely aware that there was a writer named <coughs> this name. But, but uh, um so I thought, if they don't know about him, then there's what hope is there for this guy's literary reputation? But he's so good. I think he should be, um, you know, uh, I think he and I think he will be considered one of the great writers of of American literature. Um, I sure hope so. Um, so it'll take some big rediscovery in twenty years or something to cement it. But but uh, Mr. You know, Mr. No- Mr. And Mrs. Bridge are great novels. They're so good. They're great. 
Son of the Rising Star, the two long oh, epic yeah. poems, all the nonfiction, the all the non-fiction. short stories. He, I mean, the body of work is just incredible. He his those two books, which I guess got uh, the White Lantern and the Long Desire, which got uh, bundled into a bigger yeah. book with some more Aztec essays. Treasure House, yeah, Aztec Treasure House. Yeah. That those remain for me a high water mark of what an historian can do with his or her own sort of personality. He he liked to foreground the artificiality of the of the of historical to- storytelling. It is, it is reaching for something. So I'm just getting a lot of getting a lot of glare from that window. Oh, see, I, I made you look like you were in heaven. Anyway, well, his his sort of foregrounding of the process, right? Of yeah. his <laughs> too, too soon. Yeah. <laughs> his foregrounding of the process um, and putting inserting his personality into the work in a way that said, you know what? These people say this. These people say this other thing. These people. These other people say a third thing. Who knows which is true? But here yeah. they all are. Yeah. And here's what I think might have happened. Yeah. And I really like that way of. It's a great act of negative capability. Yeah. 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 This could be true. This contradictory thing could be true. Let's stay here in this moment where they're both true for a minute. Yeah. Even though they're both ridiculous and probably not true. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There's lots of that in Son of the, Son of the Rising Star. There's yeah. a, my, my favorite word in, in Son of the Rising Star is some, I guess there's at one point the, um, what was the tribe who fought against Custer at that, at that battle? Who he had the gripe with. The gripe, yeah. <laughs> it was a Sioux, yeah. I think it was the Sioux. Anyway, Lakota, yeah, Lakota so Sioux. The, but they sent him a they sent him a note. They sent a note saying that they were gonna they were gonna murder everybody and um and it was incredibly graphic and disturbing letter and um Cannell <laughs> quotes it and then he has a one sentence paragraph which is well <laughs> with an exclamation mark. <laughs> oh my. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, good. Um, so yeah, good. he's he's so uh, so. No one was talking about him at the Gwendolyn Brooks event. Well, why would they talk about him? No. But uh, it's just <laughs> coinc- coinc- coincidentally, just talking with some Kansas notable Kansas former Kansas writers, we're like, oh, I never heard of that person. Like, yeah. like if you're uh, uh, geographically uh, geographic, your co co geographicans. <laughs> Aren't aware of you than who who will be co-geographicans. Co-geographicans, I like it. Um, Found some other things. I've uh, um, found an old copy of uh, Antaeus. Oh yeah, Antaeus. Sure, I got a few of those. Who's in it? Any anyone we know? This is from 1974. So no one. Special fiction issue. Yeah. Such a this was a beautiful magazine. Yeah. Just the, the the layout and everything. Oh, it's a weird, weird mix. Sultan Eaton, Mishima, Laura Riding, Jackson, John Hawks, Mary Butts, who is a really good story in here. I'd never heard of her before. Oh, I, you know, laughed at her name a little bit, and then read the sure. book and sure, sure. laughed at my then I laughed at my ignorance, deris derisively. Uh, William Gaddis, uh, Coover, um, Oates, Thomas Dish. K. Boyle, Wolfgang Borchert, uh, Peter Handke, 
Um, where'd you where'd you find this? Moravia. Um camera Oh, it did uh, Mother Foucault's books. But then there were some stories in here by Roger Skillings. Yeah. Um, whose name I've, I've sort of, you know, familiar with from tables of contents, but had never read. Have you read Roger Skillings? No. These stories are fucking amazing. Really? From 1974. And uh, he's, he's still alive. I guess he was involved with the Provincetown. I think he ran the Provincetown. Fine Arts Work Center program or something. Sure. So, I mean, he's, uh, you know, I, I think a, a major figure, I guess, probably to Boston. But when I Google you know, him, I'm getting a lot of stuff about, uh, I'm getting a lot of stuff about Provincetown, but I'm not getting books. Did he not publish these stories in a book? He published, I think these stories are in a book that I haven't been able to get my hands on yet. Oh, here it is Summer's uh, End Stories yeah. by R.D. Skillings. Yeah. Wow, look at that. So well, there's some books. It looks like never... it's in print from the, what the hell is this? P-A-A-M. Is this the is this a Provincetown thing? Maybe. The Provincetown Art Association and Museum has uh, is selling copies of this book, and perhaps they published it as well. Um, Jhumpa Lahiri blurbed it, so she ha- he has indeed been read by people of note yeah but you said and, and, and maybe he you know maybe as he kept writing he wasn't maybe what maybe he didn't write very well after this yeah maybe it was just a little flourish of youth yeah but these th- four stories in here are just um some of the best things i've read in a while i found while you were uh, talking about it um a little some somebody's blog i'll link to this in the notes um someone uh, made a blog post back in 2009 um, praising the era of Antaeus, especially the 70s, which seemed to be its uh, its heyday. Yeah. It lasted till 94, and it gives a nice uh, nice series of photos of covers of the magazine, which were quite beautiful. Usually with a yeah. with a like a uh, a woodcut and some or a lino cut or something, and uh, or an etching followed by the yeah. list of writers on this very, very textured matte finished paper. Really nice. Nice paper. Yeah, nice design. And they seem to do different different textures on the paper every now and then. Yeah. So. I remember it was still, you know, still publishing when we started writing. Um, uh, yep. But. I think I, I think, even submitted to it very early on and then, yeah. then they disappeared. It's the sort of thing that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, magazine like this. There's good magazines out there, but I don't know. I feel like uh, Epoch at uh, Cornell is is in that space still. Yeah, very old school. By the it takes way, money, uh, I suppose. Kevin's uh, book is called, appealingly enough, Bunk. Bunk. Or I think it might be Bunkum. Yeah, but, but Bunk. That's what it is. Yeah. Coming out in uh, in a in. Uh, uh, November. So we're we're getting a little long, but I wanted to share one last food note. Mm-hmm. Um, something I knew you could do and forgot, and now have remembered, which is if you want a make sweet. A oh, oh I'll, I'll make a roux, my friend. I made, okay. um, I, you know, I made homemade uh, macaroni and cheese for the first time 
last month. I've never done it, nice. like not from a box. Yeah. Um, and uh, the thing you got to do first is you got to make a roux. You start with a roux. You do start with a roux. And um, add, added some added some garlic and some uh, yeah. some sausage, other other yeah. tasty herbs and things. And man, that was some delicious, not very good for me stuff. You may remember the macaroni. Was it a macaroni and cheese cook off? Yeah, we yeah. were the judges for. Yeah, we in episode an, episode two. Yep, it's an early episode of, of our podcast. Of this podcast. Yeah. yeah, you can do a lot of things with macaroni and cheese. What did you say? The title is like like a young somebody or another. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Burt Reynolds. Anyway, that jackaroni and cheese. Jackaroni and cheese. Did it won? Yeah. Didn't it? I it, I think he I think it didn't win, and he was upset about it. <laughs> um, I think one of the contestants, John Backman will be dog sitting for us yeah. as we go down to Idlewild in a few days. Great. Macaroni and cheese contestant. Great. Is Alice yeah. going to be there? Not this year. No. Oh. Alas. No. I always like it when uh podcast uh podcast friends get together. Mm-hmm. Lit mag friends. Anyway, the thing I wanted to um tell you about was not a roux, but um uh, ice cream made from food processed frozen bananas and strawberries. What? You you take some fresh bananas, fresh uh, bananas, ripe but not too ripe. You chop them up into pieces, put them in a put the pieces in a bag, throw them in the freezer. Also freeze a few strawberries, strawberries okay. chunks. Okay. When they're frozen, you take them out, you throw them in the food processor. Maybe put a dollop of yogurt in there if you want a little extra creaminess. You just grind that stuff up. It turns into a delicious ice cream-like paste that is uh, quite good for you. Uh, it's almost a smoothie. How is it different from a smoothie? It's frozen. Because oh, all the ingredients are still frozen. The ingredients are still frozen. you got to eat it pretty quickly. Yeah. It's, it doesn't have the... It it starts to melt right away, unlike ice cream, which seems to maybe it's because of all the fat in ice cream. Yeah, it kind of hangs on to its cold, right? But uh, I have uh, I've been in, on something of a health kick, but not so much of one that I'm not going to indulge in treats all the time. And That's right. How like, about frozen grapes? Do you like a frozen grape? You know what? Uh, Stephanie was just recommending frozen grapes to me. I've never tried them, and I have never some tried grapes. a frozen grape. Oh my god. All right, I'm going to put a, I'm going to put a bunch in the freezer right now. Oh, looks like looks like that's happening without my intervention right this second. Frozen grapes. Yeah, it's got to be hot out. Yeah, it's it's cool here right now. You don't want a frozen grape if it's even if it's below eighty degrees. Frozen grape seems like just like like what the fuck are you doing? (laughs) But as as you approach the the centenary mark, yeah, a, a frozen grape. We'll okay. make your day. All right. I'm 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 in. I'm in. Yeah. All right. Well, enjoy your frozen grapes. Thank you. I've got to freeze them first, but I'll enjoy the intervening time as well. Have a good time waiting for your frozen grapes. <laughs> and, and Eddie, have a good time uh, going to uh, Idlewild. When you get back, let's, uh, let's podcast some more. My travels, I have one more week of travel for the book. Um, okay. I've taught the class that I was going to teach, um, and... Uh, just going to be here at home writing. For the right, well, next time so. I can tell you all about my new bluegrass band. Yeah, what are they called? The Hill Williams. 
It's not my name. Not my favorite name. Not <laughs> it's name okay, though. It's all right. It's a good name. Yeah. Uh, band that I've joined. Good. And they have gigs. Well. Actual human gigs. Damn. Where we go to bars and play music and get paid slightly. Technically. <laughs> technically get paid. Yeah. And then uh, uh, get ready for the next gig. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. Very excited. Yeah, well, definitely tell me about it. So uh, have yeah. have yourself a lovely uh, whatever today is afternoon. Thursday? Peace. <laughs> Peace, bro. Are you hungry for lunch? Well, then let's have lunch. Do you want some lunch? Well, then we'll give you some lunch. Do you have a hankering for lunch? Then come to lunch Cause it's time for lunch Box with Ed and John That's right It's time for lunch Box with Ed and John